Our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 7 through 14. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the will of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifest through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. This is God's word. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here uh, at Church of the Redeemer. It is good to see so many of you this morning. We are winding down the summer, unfortunately, or maybe for some of us, fortunately, I'm not sure. Um, But our series is coming to an end, too, in just a few weeks. And this whole summer, we've been uh, using kind of this picture. You know, it's, it's summer, and so with all the activities that you would do in the summer, whether it's boating or going to the beach, whatnot, uh, there are really two things you have to worry about, that you have to first worry about the wind and the waves. Uh, so, you know, you go, to the, you go to the beach or you want to go out in a boat, and if it's a really windy day, like, or if the weather pattern has been like it's been for the past, what in the world's going on in Florida the past week or so, with all of the stormy, messy weather, uh, it might be a bad day. But even if it's a good day, if you go to the beach and, you know, the kids begin to wade out into the water or you're going to go on an offshore fishing trip or whatever it might be. It might be a, a very, you know, a calm day, a windy, you know, no wind, no waves, but there's still the danger of the current, of the riptide, of the subterranean things that are happening underneath the water that can carry you away and cause trouble as well. And in life, like that analogy, there really are two kinds of storms. There are the external storms, suffering and physical pain and, and uh, relational conflict and even death. And those are the kinds of things that we dealt with earlier in the summer. We talked about all of these external pressures and trials that we face. But for many of us, the real storm is often what's happening, not out here, but what's happening on the inside. Everything looks fine. We're just kind of cruising through life, but nobody knows. But on the inside, underneath the surface, uh, there's anxiety or fear or shame that is just crippling. And it's like a storm raging uh, in the inner parts of your heart and life. Proverbs says that whoever rules his spirit is better than he who takes a city. And for many of us, the real conflict is what's what's going on inside that we're trying to rule ourselves. So this morning's topic is the topic of fear. Uh, We want to keep kind of talking about some of these internal internal realities. And from 2 Timothy here, For God gave us not a spirit of fear, verse 7, but of power and love and self-control. Now there's a parallel verse In Romans 8, which is why I included it as the assurance of pardon, Paul says there, you did not receive a spirit spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received instead the spirit of adoption as sons. So these verses teach there's a pervasive, oppressive, controlling fear that we all live with, but in saving us, 
as we claim, what God is doing is he's delivering us from the sphere. And so for a Christian person, the driving force, the driving force of a Christian's life isn't fear. Okay, squeezer and what comes out isn't fear, Paul says, but power and love and self-control. And that's a miracle. Right? I mean, that's a miracle. To be a person so empowered by the Holy Spirit that you're not controlled by your fear, but by those things. Now, a few years ago, Ashley and I got away to see The Lion King uh, at the Performing Arts Center in Tampa. And if you've only seen the movie and not seen the show, you're not quite prepared for the spectacle of the show. It really is amazing. Uh, and I wasn't quite ready for it. it, it um, you, you probably will not be surprised to hear me say it, re- it really wrecked me in many ways. It was, it's a very powerful story. It's the story of a young lion, in case you're not familiar, who is the heir of the kingdom, whose father is murdered by his uncle, uh, the father's brother, who wants the throne for himself. And after he kills the king, he chases the young lion off into Simba, into exile, uh, to keep him from becoming a rival. And in his travels, Simba, this young lion, kind of loses his way. He forgets his old life, and he settles into this other life of irresponsibility and ease, we'll call it. Hakuna Matata, right? Which means no worries, no worries. Means no worries for the rest of your days, okay? But while, while he's away, there's a problem. His father's kingdom is, is being destroyed by his uncle. And the officials of the kingdom come looking for him, if you remember this part of the story. And, uh, and, and they're hoping that they can convince him to return and to take his rightful place because the, the kingdom is crumbling. Uh, the kingdom needs him. And when the officials finally catch up with him, it's an amazing uh, scene, both in the movie but really in the play particularly. Um, they find him and they beg him to come back and he says, you know, no, I, I'm not, I won't. He refuses. Uh, he won't go back. He would prefer to live this new life of irresponsibility and ease that he's found because we find out he's afraid. He's being motivated by fear. And so my favorite part of the show, the part that really wrecked me, happens right at this point uh, when he's wrestling with the implications of who he really is and what it is that is his work to do. He has a dream or a vision or whatever it is. And, and in the dream, he, he has a, a, a picture. His father comes and confronts him. And his father recognizes the fear in him. And this is what he says uh, to him. He says in this booming voice, you know, James Earl Jones, booming voice, right? You have forgotten who you are. Listen to this line. He says, you are more than you've become. You're my son, the king. And it was chill bump city for me, okay? You're more than you've become. Now that's the issue that Paul's been dealing with in writing this letter to the young Timothy. Uh, He has put Timothy in charge of the church at Ephesus, we're told, in his absence. And Timothy is a very young man, uh, very, very gifted, obviously has gifts of leadership, but he's very young, he's a bit insecure and unsure of himself. He's afraid. And in his fear, he's tempted to opt to play it safe. Uh, You know, he's not going to confront people the way he needs to or to really lead the church the way that the church needs for him to. And Paul sees this. He sees this latent spiritual ability in Timothy, and he's writing to him to say, you're more than you've become. Uh, If you have a Bible, look back one verse from where we started the Scripture reading. He says to Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God which was, which was in you, he says. In other words, there was a fire in Timothy, but some, something's happened. It's gone cold. 
Fear has reduced the fire to ashes, and I think that describes so many of us. There is, I thought about this a lot this week, there's so much latent spiritual ability among us, so much fire. I know, because I've sat with you and I've heard the things that you're excited about and the dreams that you have and the beautiful things that you want to see happen through you in your families and in uh, your workplaces and in our city. There's so much fire. There's so many God-sized things. But what happens is, is the fear comes and it blows the fire out. And that's what Paul's addressing here. And it's what we've got to talk about this morning. So you see the, the theme of fear and I really want to come to these three things, and they're just the three points of the outline that I've given you. I want to ask or you know, try to investigate these three parts of this. I want to talk first about where the fear comes from. Secondly, this fear that extinguishes the fire that so many of us really have inside, but for whatever reason we can't live from it. Where, where the fear that extinguishes that come from? And, and secondly, what it really does to you. What, what the consequence of living with the spirit of fear is. And then thirdly, because we ultimately want to believe uh, that there's hope for us in the gospel, how can we overcome it? So where does it come from? What does it really do to you? And how can we overcome it? Those are the three points of the outline, uh, three points of the sermon that we'll find all of those things in this passage. Okay, so let's start just with this theme of fear. Where does it come from? Uh, Timothy said, or excuse me, Paul says to Timothy, it's a spirit of fear, which means that it's a spiritual problem and it has a spiritual solution. And so in no way do I mean to minimize the reality that some people uh, live with fear and despair coming in all sorts of emotional, chemical, and even physical reasons. And sometimes there's very little you can do about that, but the Bible goes right at our fear in a very practical way. And it says there's a spiritual component too, and that's what I want to spend the bulk of our time talking about this morning. Um, Any Bible trivia, which you probably hear a lot, I I just wonder, kids maybe if you know this, the most oft-repeated command in the Bible, anybody have any, any idea what it is? Do not fear. It's what we're commanded more than anything else. God talks about fear in the Bible way, way, way more than he talks about sex or money or about any other subject. And if it's the thing he talks about the most, what do you think is the inference we can draw from that? We must really have a problem with it. However, when God addresses our fear, he doesn't just say, don't be afraid. Right? Aren't you glad for that? I mean, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, do not fear, don't be afraid, and leave it at that. There's no help in that at all. When God addresses our fear, he doesn't just tell us that we should not be afraid. There's this formula. Every, almost, almost every single time in the scriptures when he addresses our fear, he doesn't just tell us that we should be afraid, but he immediately follows it with why we shouldn't be afraid. So it's not just do not fear. Hey, that's stupid, don't be afraid. Stop, stop acting like that. Don't be so scared. No, the Lord says, do not fear. And what's the next part? For I am with you. See, the sentence we meet with over and over again is that. Fear not. I'm with you. Don't be afraid because I'll be there for you. Okay, so if God's solution to our fear is the promise to be with us, then what's the cause of our fear? Where does it come from? It comes. It must. It comes from not knowing that God is with us, not trusting and relying upon his love And that's the spiritual component in all of our fear. It's the story uh, that I think Jeff preached about a few months ago. We're actually going to come back to in a couple of weeks of the disciples in the boat with Jesus. And the storm begins to rage. And Jesus is asleep at the the front of the boat. And they are literally 
freaking out and falling apart, and they finally wake him up, and their words to him are so telling. They wake him from his sleep, and they say, don't you care that we're perishing? I mean, that's the real storm, isn't it? That's the storm in the midst of the storm. The winds are howling, and the waves are crashing, and Jesus is asleep. He doesn't care. He isn't concerned about me at all. That's where the fear comes from. Uh, we got to spend a week in, in July in the mountains for family vacation this year, and we hiked it to a few waterfalls. And uh, so one of the first waterfalls that we came to had this little swimming hole at the bottom, uh, you know, and, uh, and then over on the side, there were, you know, it was a waterfall. There were rocks. And so, of course, I have a 12-year-old, and so he says, hey, we're going to, let's climb the waterfall. So the, so the kids, so, you know, and, I, I, and so I turned to the rest of the group and said, hey, guys, we should climb to the top. Of the, you, you know, you should climb to the top of the waterfall. And, and all of my kids, you know, the first response was kind of like, uh, except for, you know, the one, oh, no, that's, that's, what if we slip and fall? We can't do that. No, we shouldn't do that. And then I said, well, what if I do it with you? And then there's this immediate, oh, well, if you're going to go, then yeah, let's do it. Hey, let's all do it. That'll be fun. Okay? Now, what's the difference? What, what is it about me, you know, me suggesting that they climb the waterfall, which would elicit kind of, I don't know if we can do that, and then me saying, well, what if I go with you? They, they, they weren't going to have to do it alone. I was going to be with them. Now, in truth, in truth, that probably made very little difference. Okay? I'm, I'm not nearly as agile and uh, athletic as I once was. But they don't know that. Isn't that the great thing about being a dad? Kids don't know that. Right? They're, they are naive enough to believe that no matter what trouble they might get into, if I'm around, I can get them out of it. I'm going to let them think it for as long as they you know, want to. So if their strength fails them, and if I'm around, uh, then my strength won't. My presence literally takes away their fear. I've seen this over and over again in, in raising my, my four kids. And that's the way that we should live too. It's what Paul is trying to do here with Timothy to encourage him. Don't be timid. Don't be bold. Don't, be, don't take risks. Be on fire. But he can't because he can't get over his fear. He's overwhelmed with his responsibilities. He uh, can only see his youth and his inexperience. What matters most in Timothy's imagination is what he can't do, not what God can do. And that's where the fear comes from. It comes from not taking God at his word when he says, Do not fear I am with you. Okay, but second, not only do we see where the fear comes from, but what it does to us. Paul, again, verse 7, calls it a spirit of fear. In Romans 8, he says it's a spirit of slavery causing us to fall back into fear. So it's not just fear, it's a pervasive, oppressive fear. Fear that controls your life. So Paul writes, verse 7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. So you begin to see, if you take those three words there, and you just flip them to the opposite, you begin to see what fear really does do in your life. Okay, He says, not, not fear, but power. In other words, fear first, just a couple of things. Fear robs you of your spiritual strength. It's not a spirit of fear, but of power. So the opposite of fear is spiritual weakness. And here's why. We have to ask this question, where does spiritual power come from? Now, according to Paul... In these words to Timothy, where do we experience spiritual power? Look down at verse 8. He goes on to say to Timothy, Do not be ashamed about the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel, and here's the phrase, by the power of God. So according to Paul, you experience spiritual power 
in suffering, in weakness. What is it? Remember he wrote to the Corinthians, for when I am weak, then I am strong. It's the weakness. The weakness in that verse there in 2 Corinthians is suffering. It's only when you come to the end of your strength that you find that you find his strength and you really experience it. I was having a conversation with a friend uh, you know, this past week and we were marveling at the way Christians all over the world in places uh, unlike America embrace suffering and they do it with such joy and peace and power. And we were just kind of talking to one another saying, man, we, we don't have any of that. You know, and, I, and, 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 and what, what we, what we came, kind of the conclusion we came to is not um, that, that they have some kind of spiritual experience that we don't. The difference is, is that it's the suffering. It's the suffering is where the power and the joy and the peace come from. We don't suffer much, and so we don't have much joy and power. It's the suffering where the joy and the power come from. And so fear, fear keeps you from the very situations where you experience the power of God. It keeps you from embracing weakness, and so it robs you of the experience of spiritual power. There's a really important teaching about, our, about, about the gospel in these verses. Paul tells Timothy, verse 8, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner. Uh, and, and that phrase, don't be ashamed, he goes on later in the chapter to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And that phrase, do not be ashamed of the gospel, occurs in his letters over and over again. So Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God. And I was talking to Ashley, I've never really been quite able to make sense of what Paul means by this. And so that's what's so fun about getting to do what I get to do. Uh, to sit with the scripture and to ask God for understanding. And it, it really hit home this week that to be ashamed of the gospel, at least how I understand Paul saying it, means that you hate being weak. I mean, the gospel leads us to weakness, doesn't it? The gospel leads us to weakness, and to be, to be ashamed of the gospel then is to try to avoid your weakness, to try to ignore it, to cover it, to deny it, to compensate for it. Because what is the gospel? The gospel is, is we are not right with God. We need to be made right with Him, but it is not our strength, it's not our religious commitments, it's not our righteousness, it's not our doing that makes us right with Him. We need to be made right with Him, but it's His strength and His commitment to us, it's his righteousness, it's his doing. So the wrong way to come to him is on the basis of our strength. The right way to come to him, the only way to come to him is on the basis of his strength. But in order to come to him on the basis of his strength, you have to admit your weakness. You see how this works? That's faith and repentance. So practically, when God is working in your life, it's always towards weakness. Jesus died in apparent defeat. Paul is writing, you know, from prison, and he writes to Timothy, don't be ashamed of what happened to him. Don't be ashamed of what happened to me. Don't try to avoid a similar fate. When God works to make you weak, don't hate it. Don't resent it. Don't resist it. Verse 8, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. You see that? The gospel leads you to weakness. If you hate being weak, then you undo the gospel. You rob yourself of the experience of God's power. Okay, but secondly, not only does fear rob you of spiritual strength, it also turns you in on yourself. So it's not a spirit of fear, we're told here, but of power and of love, which means the opposite of fear is love. And the main cause of fear is self-preoccupation, self-love, self-concern, self-protection, self. Fear comes from too much thinking about myself. 
not enough thinking about what it is that God has done for me and what he's doing for me right now. But love is the opposite of selfishness. Love is being so absorbed in the other person that you don't have time to be thinking about yourself. Love is self-forgetfulness, right? We've talked about this before. If you're afraid you're thinking too much about yourself, you can't love. You're worrying too much about meeting your own needs. You can't meet the needs of others. But love takes you outside of yourself. Fear keeps you brooding and internal. Jonathan Edwards wrote a great sermon about selfishness being the opposite of love in his book, Charity and Its Fruits. And here's what he said. He said, and these are, are, okay, these are 300-year-old words, and so bear with me as I try to read these to you. But here's here's what Edwards says. He said, before sin... Man's soul was under the government of that noble principle of divine love, whereby it was enlarged to the comprehension of all his fellow creatures and their welfare. Okay, So he's saying, before sin, all of us lived with this outgoing, overflowing, um, unselfish love and care and concern for other people. That's how we were created to live by God. But, he goes on, As soon as he had transgressed against God, these noble principles were immediately lost. And all this excellent enlargedness of man's soul was gone. And thenceforward, he himself shrank into a little space, closely shut up within himself to the exclusion of all things. Sin contracted his soul to the very small dimensions of selfishness. It's really amazing. He's saying we were made to live these big, you know, adventurous lives in love for other people, but because of sin, we've become contracted and we've shrunk and our lives have become so small and narrow and and just contracted in on ourselves. In other words, we are more than we've become. Fear makes you selfish, and a selfish life is a small life. I mean, that's Simba's problem. It's Timothy's problem. But God is delivering us from the chains of self-centeredness and restoring an excellent extensiveness and enlargement and generosity to the soul, to use Edwards' words. A loving life is a large life. And God has given us not a spirit of fear, but of love to free us from our self-concern. So who cares? Who cares? Who cares if you fail? Who ca- Listen, who cares if you fail if you're trying to love? If you're motivated to love, who cares? But fear, fear does that, doesn't it? Fear... Robs us of spiritual strength and it turns us in on ourselves and self-concern that just binds us. And the last thing we see is that fear dominates us emotionally. It's not a spirit of fear, Paul says, but of power and love and self-control. So the opposite of fear is self-control, self-discipline. Which means, of course, when you're afraid, you're out of control, you're irrational, you're not thinking straight. And this leads to all kinds of bad decisions. God, we're told, is delivering us from this emotional chaos. I mean, isn't that what Joe talked about last week? about possessing yourself, about being kept in perfect peace by God's love that acts, I loved his, uh, his analogy, that acts as a fortress or a castle so that no matter what's going on out there, on the inside you're okay, you're in control of yourself, you're free from epi-emotion that cripples and binds. You don't get too high with good news, you don't get too low with bad news, you're unaffected by changing circumstances because you're living from the inside out, not the outside in. You see what fear does? We are controlled by it, enslaved to it, bound, to use John Piper's words, to invisible ropes that confine us to small, safe, innocuous, self-centered ways 
of life. There's all this latent spiritual talent and potential in us, like Paul saw in Timothy, but too often it goes unused because of fear. But when you become a Christian, the work of God gets aimed at your fear to make you spiritually strong in weakness, to make you courageously self-forgetful and love for other people, and to make you steadfast and constant amidst your ever-changing circumstances, so that, verse 8, you can have all the resources you need to share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. That's what God's doing in us. Isn't that good news? But how? How can we be set free from the fear that enslaves? That's where I want to end. Uh, So let's talk about that as we come to a close. Now go back to the beginning of the sermon and, and think again. Where does fear come from? It comes from being alienated from God, from not knowing his love, from not having a a real experience and confidence in his love and care. So despite all the times God says to us, fear not, I'm with you, we can't quite talk ourselves into believing that it's true. And that's really the consequence of our sin, okay? It's a consequence of our sin. So the man who responds to his wife when she asks him, do you love me, with, well, Honey, I told you once that I loved you, and I promise I'll let you know if it ever changes. Okay? That man sets his wife up up for all kinds of doubt. He's not loving her very well. God is not so sparing in his declarations of love for us. Over and over again, he says, I'm with you. I love you. I could not be more delighted in you. I'm excited about what you're doing. But it's part of our brokenness that we could hear him say to us over and over and over again, I love you. Let me show you. I'll be here for you. You don't have anything to be afraid of. And to be confronted with so much evidence that he can be trusted in those words to us. And then we would continue to move on and not trust him. See, something's broken in us. Our hearts don't work right. And here's why. In First John, which is a letter John wrote to the churches that's toward the end of the Bible... The Bible says that because of our sin, we are constantly having to reassure ourselves before him because our hearts are constantly accusing and condemning us. So no matter how many times God says, don't fear, I'm with you, don't fear, I'm with you, our hearts come right behind. You know, we read that verse and the immediate thing is, well, it can't be true. It isn't true. It can't be true. Think of all the the bad stuff, you know, you've done. That, That just can't be the case. And the only way to overcome your heart that constantly condemns is to know that he doesn't. Our heart condemn us. Our hearts condemn us. But he goes on to say, John there, says there, but God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. And if our hearts do not condemn us, then we have confidence before God, and that's it. That's what we need. That's what we need, see? Paul in Romans 8 says that we have not been given a spirit of slavery to fall back again into fear. Look at verse 15 if you have your worship folder there. But instead, we've been given the spirit of adoption as sons. So the difference between the Christian and a person who doesn't believe, or... The difference between a Christian and a person who is just religious is that the non-believing person, or even the religious person, these people are controlled by fear, but the Christian is controlled and motivated by something completely different. We are motivated by the truth of our adoption. I mean, The Lion King, again, if you've seen the movie or the show, it's in the moment of his fear, Aslan needs to hear his father say the words, you are more than you've become, you've forgotten who you are, and here's here's the healing tonic. You are my son. It was his sonship that took away his fear. And so the key to living without fear is to know God loves you as a father, that he climbs the waterfall with you. That if your foot slips, he'll be there to steady you. That when your strength fails you, 
His never will. He's not an exacting father. Like the ones many of us grew up with, he is generous and kind and full of mercy. Look at the way Paul puts it to Timothy. And by the way, I find it interesting that Timothy's father is never mentioned in the Bible. His mother and his grandmother are, but uh, it's probably likely Timothy is lacking a father figure. And so Paul was that, but he wants, he wants ultimately the Lord to be that for Timothy. And so look at his words here in verse 9. He saves us, Paul says, and calls us, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Do you know what that means? It means that God does not look down upon the good that you do and smile, nor does he look down upon the bad that you do and frown. His love for you is completely independent of good or bad that you're responsible for. It's given to you, we're told there, verse 9, in Christ Jesus. That is, because of Christ Jesus, for his sake, on the basis of his merit, not yours. In his death, Jesus experienced the Father turning away from him. And because the Father turned away from the Lord Jesus on the cross, he will never turn away from you and I. You see, you see, the because of God's love for you is not your goodness. The because of God's love for you is his grace. And therefore, when he says, I'll be with you, then there's no exception. There, the, there's, no, there's no exception to the rule of that. Those are words that are not the reward for a good life. They are the hope of desperate sinners who keep finding themselves in trouble that is of their own making. And the reason we can live and not be afraid is no matter how desperate the situation might be, what's true is not what we can see. It's not the calculations that we can run in our mind. It's not my weakness, but it's his strength and it's his sufficiency. That's the promise. That's the promise for every single one of us this morning. In John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, there's a scene where Christian and his traveling companion, they're captured by the giant despair and thrown into the dungeon of the castle doubting. For days they're beaten by the giant until it seems that all hope is gone. How can they ever escape? And then Christian has this epiphany. He remembers that he had earlier been given a key. And the name of the key was promise. And what he knew was is that the key promise, he was sure that the key promise would unlock any door in Downing Castle. And so Christian takes the key and he puts it into the lock of his jail cell and he turns the key, and the key, promise, is the thing that unlocks the door to the cell uh, where he's being held by the, by the giant despair, and he escapes. And it's Bunyan's way of saying that the way you combat fear and unbelief is with the promises of God. And that's the spiritual lesson even that this meal points us to, isn't it? Is your heart crying out like the disciples in the boat? Do you care? Look here, here's the answer. His body broken, his blood poured out. Yes, he cares. What prison of fear are you languishing in? The promise, I will be with you. Fear not, I will be with you. That promise is the key that can unlock the door and set you free. That's our hope this morning. And so let's pray that he would come and meet us as we gather around this table. Will you pray with me? Father, we pray now that as we come to partake of this sacrament together that you would meet us and be with us and do what you promised to do for us, uh, that you would meet us in our weakness and in our uh, grief and in our sadness and in our despair, that you would strengthen and encourage and be mindful of us. Thank you that you, um, you don't get tired of our, of our need for you proving your love for us, but that you've instituted that we celebrate this meal as often as we can and we, that we do it in remembrance of you because you know that the very thing 
uh, upon which our obedience hinges is our ability to remember, to look back, and to remember and to take heart uh, for all of the goodness that you've done to us, for your faithfulness uh, over and over again to us, that if we were to stop and think for one minute, we would be um, convinced of the truth of the words that you truly have been with us. And if you have been with us, then what reason would we have to doubt that you will be with us moving forward? But please, Father, we confess, we believe, but help our unbelief. That's the opportunity you've given us in these moments. And so we pray that by your spirit, you come and help. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Think about things this way. The, the liturgy that we do every, every Sunday kind of lends itself. It really condescends itself to our weakness because we've been assured uh, that of a pardon of God's mercy towards us in Christ Jesus. We've heard comforting words from his scriptures. We've been fed and nourished at his table. And as if all of that is not enough, we end the service with, again, yet the promise of the benediction, which is just that he will go with us and before us. And so do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, but heed the words uh, that I speak over you now, because this is, this is the, the healing balm uh, to the wounds of fear in your life. So receive these words in faith, and then go uh, in love and power and self-control to bring much glory to him. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.